Well, welcome to week two of a series we've been in called Your Biggest Fan. Last week was Mother's Day and we celebrated our moms and we launched this new series where we are highlighting four different women in our church that have done amazing things uh, in and through the church and God has been working in their lives and using them in incredible ways in the kingdom of God. We've seen that over and over in the history of our church. We see that over and over again in church history throughout scripture. God uses and elevates and highlights women at pivotal points in the history of church. And so we are using this series to, to highlight you. We are your biggest fans. Last week, we talked about Ruth and how God ended up using Ruth to, to not only save her family, but changed her family tree. She ends up being, you know, in the bloodline of King David and Jesus himself. We met Kayla from our church and how God has used her to overcome her circumstances, you know, being a single mom to two beautiful kiddos and just how God has shown himself to be faithful to her over and over and how she's learned to be obedient to the things that he's calling her to, even when it's difficult. And we, we hope this series serves as just an encouragement to all of us to know that God can use anyone. It doesn't matter how old you are, what your race is, what your you know, background is, what your financial status, your, your, your gender, male, female, it doesn't matter. God can and will use you to do amazing things. And I want to start this week where we started last week, and that's in Ephesians 4, when Paul talks about how uh, pastors and teachers, it's our responsibility to equip you. In verse 12, it says, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So, so we are here to equip you to do the work of the ministry, to build his church. You are the real heroes. You're the ones on the front lines. You're the boots on the ground. And we couldn't do this without you. So last week we looked at Ruth. This, year, this, this week we're, we're talking about Esther. Now, of all the books in the Bible, named after all kinds of different people, Esther is the only other book that is named for a woman. It's Ruth and Esther. And Esther's name is mentioned 55 times in the Bible, more than any other woman, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, this story is, is a fascinating one. Uh, it would make an incredible movie. If you, if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to go read the whole thing. It's absolutely amazing. But to give you some background, where we are at this point in history, it's, this is 100 years after the Babylonian exile of Jews from their land. So the Jewish people have scattered. They've gone all over. And there's this community of Jewish people living in Persia in a place called Susa. And that's where Esther is. And at a very early age, Esther's dad passes away and she's adopted by her cousin, Mordecai. So you have Esther and Mordecai living in Susa. Now, another major player here is the king of Persia. Now, the king of Persia decides to hold this, this great feast, right? A, a banquet just to display his greatness to his people. That's what kings like to do in those days, apparently. And during this great banquet, he gets really drunk, and he asks his wife to come in and put on a show for the people, to display her beauty to the people. She refuses, and it really ticks him off. And so basically, he boots her out, and he holds this beauty pageant to find a new queen. Now enter Esther. Esther's all grown up. Remember, she's Jewish, living in Susa. She enters uh, this, this pageant, 
but she's keeping her Jewish identity a secret. We can read that in Esther 2, verse 10. It says Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. So she's hiding it. She doesn't want to admit that she's actually Jewish. Well, she enters the pageant, and of course, she wins. <laughs> and the king is so enamored with her and with her beauty that he makes her his new queen. So you have Mordecai, Esther, the king of Persia, and now we have Haman. Haman is the highest ranking official of the king. And he's very powerful. He's kind of a bad guy, right? He's super into himself. He decides that no matter where he goes, when he walks around the city, everyone that he comes in contact with should bow down to him just because he's so great. Well, Mordecai refuses to bow to him, and that does not go over well with Haman. We can pick it up in chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality. No, he had learned that Mordecai was Jewish. So he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. Now, this is bad news because Mordecai and Esther, they're, they're Jewish and their people are about to be wiped out. So Haman he talks the king into, into enacting this decree to kill all the Jews. And they, they pick a date in the future and they say, you know, 11 months from now, on a particular day, all the Jews will die. So Mordecai and Esther have to make a plan. And they're going to basically send Esther in to, to ask the king to reconsider. But the problem is approaching a king in those days without being summoned for, right, without an invitation, without being requested, that's not a, a good thing. In fact, it's punishable by death. And there's this amazing exchange between Mordecai and Esther where they're kind of hatching this plan. And Mordecai says to her, this is chapter 4, verse 14. He says, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. He tells her, listen, God may have put you right here as queen for exactly this purpose, to save your people, to save the Jewish people from annihilation. And Esther Weighing the, 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 what's stacked against her, kind of weighing what it's going to cost her. In verse 16 says this, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. And how incredible is that? Like she's ready to risk her life, not just to save herself and Mordecai, but the entire Jewish people in Susa. So, a very, very long story short, <laughs> she goes in to see the king. She reveals to him that she's actually Jewish and that this decree to kill the Jewish people is also going to kill her. This upsets the king. He basically orders Haman's execution. They impale him on this huge pole and he elevates Mordecai to his position and they reverse the decree and save the Jewish people from annihilation. Now, maybe, maybe Esther's like you. You know, Esther didn't want to reveal where she was from, who she was, her true identity, that she was Jewish. But it's that very thing that God used to save the Jewish people. Maybe you're a little bit like Esther. Maybe you've hidden your past. Maybe you don't want to, people to know, you know, who you were 
and where you're from and what you've been through, things you've done. Maybe you're not proud of your past. Maybe you're, you're afraid that your past will define your future. Maybe you're afraid that if people knew who you really were and what you've really been through, they would reject you or they would judge you. But maybe, just maybe, just like Esther, maybe it's that very thing that you're ashamed of, that very thing that you're hiding and that you're afraid to confront. Maybe it's that very thing that God wants to use in your life to bring glory to himself, to reach people around you that maybe are going through similar things, have been through similar things. I want to introduce you to April. April's been with us for a while now. She has an incredible story, one that she's been reluctant to share up until now, just how God has used her pain, her trauma over and over to help lead people into their own healing and their own relationships with Jesus. And we ask April to share her story with you. So check this out. So I am a, I was born and raised here in Lubbock. I've lived here all my life, a product of a single mom. Um, so it was very lonely growing up. Um, my mom sometimes had two and three jobs at a time. So she was either at work and not present or at home asleep or not present. So I was very lonely growing up, didn't really have a lot of um, church friends or didn't grow up in the church at all. Um, so not a lot of quality friends. Um, I always felt like I was different than everybody else. I felt like there was something about me that was, you know, not acceptable. It was just, it was, I was just too different. So um, high school was where I met a boy and thought I was in love and was great and the closer I got to him the more I felt like I was finding what I'd been looking for the family the um, the love the intimacy um, all that stuff um, about a year into the relationship the violence started um, he was very quiet and that was what it attracted me to him uh, but the closer we got the more I found out about his character and I think a lot of my own insecurities started coming up. Um, I was never the provoking type, uh, but at that time in my life, I did try to defend myself. I think that was when my anger and, and suppressed rage started coming out. Um, he wasn't going to hit me, and I wasn't going to defend myself. I wasn't going to fight back. Um, and I knew that my dad was an abuser. I knew that that was why my mom had left him uh, before I was born. So it started to make sense that those feelings were coming up because that's where I come from uh, but I never I never tried to walk away I was I think I was more drawn to the fact that I had somebody and that I felt the intimacy um, and it felt normal chaos felt normal for me so I stayed and um, the closer I got to him the further I got from my mom and um, I broke curfew but anytime I had any kind of punishment I never had to go through with it because she wasn't there to know if I was abiding by it anyway. I always tried to be honest, but, you know, I was a kid, so I started slipping in school, started skipping school, my grades started dropping, my, my whole focus was just on him, um, despite what was going on. Um, I felt like a fixer, I felt like I needed to continue to support him. As mean as he was and as violent as it got, I felt like he needed me. Um, he was drunk and hanging out with friends and wouldn't tell me where he was 
ended up waiting in his driveway for him, and he flew in the driveway drunk, mad, um, just at whatever. I don't. Maybe he was mad at me. I don't know. Um, we had gotten into a fight because I I didn't want to be around him when he was drunk. So um, we started. I say we started fighting. He. Um, he hit me. I was just, I was frantic. I lost, I don't know, any kind of feeling of security came out that night. Any kind of, it was like such a high and then such a low. And um, I left. I remember that drive back home just feeling like, where do I go from here? It wasn't until I found out that he had found another girl that I was like, okay, I'm done with this. I'd at my job one day, there was a guy that was talking to a recruiter, and um, the idea of the Army came into the picture. And I thought, okay, what a perfect way to get away. What a perfect way to just run from little old Lubbock. And um, so I joined when I was 17, um, but joining the Army, I joined the Army to kind of go find myself, but I was also running at the same time because I didn't process any of the stuff that I had dealt with. I didn't even believe that I was at the place that I was at. I was just glad that I wasn't where I was. And um, it opened up a lot of doors. It opened up my eyes to me. Um, but I was still kind of drawn back to my past. I was drawn to the, the history. I didn't process any of it. So it was just a new place to, to try to start over with the same old cycles. And um, quickly found alcohol a lot more. It was glamorized very heavily in the military. I can't recall a time that I drank that I didn't black out. So every time I drank, there was something dumb that took place. About a week after I got to my first duty station, um, I had an encounter that about six years later would have been revealed to me that was rape. Um, but I didn't say anything because I was a young, lower-ranking female in a special forces unit that was predominantly male. I was told that nobody would believe me, that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that if I spoke up, I would get in trouble because he was higher-ranking, and it was fraternization. So one night, about a year and a half later, hanging out with friends at the club, drinking like we always do, it was a four-day weekend. So in this time, four-day weekends in the military meant Thursday night drinking, Friday night drinking, Saturday night drinking, Sunday night drinking, recover on Monday, go back to work Tuesday. Um, so I found myself behind the wheel of a car, uh, my car, and within a mile, um, I had turned, gotten the wrong lane of a divided highway, and realized I was in the wrong lane, but I turned around too late. I was kind of at the base of a, a hill, and a truck coming 60 miles an hour collided with me head on. And I shattered my femur, I broke two of my toes, broke my wrists, um, and my whole world had changed because I realized that my problem had affected someone else. And I got to sit in that for a while in the hospital. I couldn't walk for six months unassisted and um, lost a lot of friends. And then about a year after that, I was doing my community service and uh, met another boy 
couple months after we met, um, had my first physical encounter with him. Um, I learned that they hit back at that point if you hit first. So I stopped physical on my part. And uh, I was bent over the back of a couch. And he, he told me that his defense mechanism was to eliminate the threat. I felt stuck. I was too ashamed to walk away from that relationship. And I think, quite honestly, I felt the intimacy despite it. And then, probably knowing what I know now, I found my normal. So I just sunk more. And um, that was the only altercation for a while. I had deployed to Iraq, and I felt the most freedom I think I had ever felt while I was deployed to a combat zone. Um, there was a couple of times we um, nearly got shot down and mortared, and actually the night before I was going home, um, we got mortared about 100 feet or 100 yards from where I was, and I was like, God, if you just, just get me home, just get me home. So I got home, and um, he was there with wine and flowers and the whole nine yards, it was awesome. Um, but a month after that, um, I was on my kitchen floor for four hours on my way out at the hands of him because he wanted my insurance policy. He thought that he was the beneficiary to my insurance policy. And I just remember laying there lifeless, helpless. I laid there literally bleeding to death. And when the paramedics finally arrived, I was uh, told that I had 20 minutes to live. Looking back, I know it wasn't a sign, but in the moment I thought it was, because I was taking a bath and I found myself under the water, not caring if I came up or not, and my phone rang, and it was him from jail 13 days after. He got put in jail after the incident. And he was a totally different person. It was an accident. He didn't understand why I hadn't called him and why I hadn't reached out. I got him out of jail. We went back home, celebrated Thanksgiving, and shoved more pain. Hid more pain. Put on more of a mask. It's my last day at Fort Carson. We weren't necessarily leaving yet, but my last day there, um, he tried again, and he told me that he didn't succeed the first time and he was going to do it this time. He was going to get away with it just like he did the last time. But it was the first time that I felt the hands of God on me, because everything in me wanted to reach up and take the weapon out of his hand, and I felt the hands of God holding my hands down, telling me, be still. I didn't know where it came from, I had no idea what it meant. I just heard, be still. And I just called this bluff. I told him either he was gonna stab me or put the knife down. Eventually, the cops came. They arrested him again, and I was out. I just started shoving and, and numbing, and at the same time, I started bleeding from wounds I couldn't even see. Then I met who would later be my second husband. The violence with him started later 
He was more of a charmer up front, but at the end of the day, I knew I couldn't because he wasn't in a position where he could be in a relationship. Um, he was married, and so more shame, more guilt, more pain, more wounds, but more of a mask. It wasn't until about a year into that that I was just so used to the abuse. It was more, I guess, more social and emotional at that point. The physical was kind of here and there, um, but it was comfortable. Right before I met him, I had found a church that I immediately found at home in, and I'd given my life over to Christ, accepted Jesus, and then I met him like probably a week later and the closer I got to God the further away I got from him and I was a believer I wasn't brought up in church or you know taught the ways of the word but something in me knew that there was if, if I had been saved from the car accident and if I had been saved from the two incidents with the last relationship, there was somebody out there that was looking after me, and I didn't want to pull away from God, but I didn't want to lose my husband at the same time. Uh, more violence, more abuse in all forms just continued, and I knew that there was a life that was better for me. I was consistently attending church with or without him, so it was getting de deposited into, but not at the depths that I am now, um, but I had my my prayer closet, and I was praying for his heart, I was praying for our marriage, I was praying for our family, so he decided enough was enough, he couldn't deal with his pain, I was trying to process through my pain, he wasn't willing to go to counseling, I was willing to go to counseling, um, so he decided enough was enough, he was ready to take us all out me, my daughter, and himself, and um, that kind of put into place my exit plan. So, he went to jail and we moved home. Then I found the city, <laughs> saw some familiar faces and was like, okay, I think I'm ready. And I had already kind of convinced myself I was in a, a position to put myself back out in the community. When I walked through those doors, I felt that same feeling that I've felt every time I walked through the church doors for the first time. I was home. And I quit caring about what people thought. Every time I was in service, it was just me and God. But the feeling that I was starting to get where it was just me and him, and I could fully be myself, not caring what anybody thought or said, was just, it was a new normal that I didn't want to let go of. Um, but I started making friends and started um, inviting people into my home, not really understanding what God was doing. But as I started to open up and share some of the deep-rooted things, that were really, what I see now is just surface level because I've gotten to some deep, deep things. Um, 
Um, he's just started aligning women that needed to hear what I was saying and what was being shared. And the more I opened up, the more they felt safe to open up. And it was just a domino effect of women opening up and having revelation and encounters with God that it wasn't my doing. I just, I think, just opened the door and set the table for it to take place. And so much freedom and so much liberation came from my initial community of friends. And I was convinced that I was never going back to my <laughs> old ways. Um, I found that those types of friends were what I needed, those that were actively pursuing God, that were trying to seek out truths, um, being okay with their faults. That was that was where I needed to be. There's something being cultivated and there's something being stirred. And I love it. My heart goes out to all the ones that are struggling during this season. But I feel like he has something for all of us right now. And it's that time to, to get in that secret place and hear the truths, believe the truths, and then go out there and spread the truth. Wow. What an incredible story. Thank you, April, for sharing uh, that with us and with our church. Thank you for everything that you've done for our church and for the people of this city, people in your circles. And, and April wanted to make sure I shared with you that she has been sober now for nine years, nine years of sobriety. And she actually leads a group for the city now, a small group uh, called Celebrate Recovery. It's a women's group that deals with addictions and she's using her story and what she's been through to help other women find their own healing and find their own sobriety and find ultimately a relationship with Jesus. Man, it's so incredible. Her, her, she's been through more suffering than most of us could possibly imagine, right? But that's her story. What is your story? What is your story? Like Esther, maybe you've hidden the past. Like, like April, maybe you think it's easier just to, to try to forget it. But listen, God uses people. God doesn't use perfect people. God uses broken, messed up people, just like me, just like you, just like literally every character you read about all throughout scripture. He uses brokenness over and over again. You look at Moses. He was a, a murderer. He had a speech impediment, right? And God's asking him to be his mouthpiece to the Pharaoh. He was inadequate. Then you have King David as an adulterer, a murderer. You have Peter, who was at times loudmouthed and arrogant, right? Who denied he even knew Jesus when Jesus needed him the most. Then you have Paul. Paul was a Pharisee that arrested, had beaten, and even murdered Christians. These are the people that God uses. Last week, we talked about, you know, you had to, to be available. This week, for you, we have this, this big idea. It's this. Tell your story. Be available. Be open to be used by God. But tell your story. You have a story for a reason. And you might not be proud of all of it. But God doesn't waste anything. He can use it. And in fact, he wants to use it. In fact, it might be the very thing that he wants to use in your life to help you 
used uh, to help you be used in the kingdom of God to reach other people. Like Esther, who risked her life to save her people. She had the courage to step out and be used at great risk to herself, right? And like April, who might have had an easier time just to, to stuff it all down, try to forget her past. But instead, she relives it. She retells it. She works through her own healing so that she can help other people do the exact same thing. So again, I ask you, what does he want to do through you? He wants to use your story, but you've got to be available. You got to be willing to tell your story. We're about to sing a song called Available. We introduced it last week. It goes really well with this series, but I want to share some lyrics with you from the end of the song. It says, for the one who gave me life, nothing is a sacrifice. Use me how you want to, God. Have your throne within my heart. For the one who gave me life, nothing's a sacrifice. In light of all that Jesus has done for us, what else could we do but offer our lives to him, offer our stories and say, here I am, use me. As we sing, I want to encourage you to let God work on you. Be open to what he's leading you to do. Tell him that you're willing to be used, willing to share your story, that you're available to him. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing. God, thank you so much again that you choose to use broken, messed up people just like us, that we don't have to be special. God, you, you choose to use brokenness. You, you uh, don't waste anything. God, you can take those broken pieces of us and make them into something beautiful. And so we say today again, we're, we're available and we want to be used by you. We want our story told. We're willing, God, to share our story. God, use our story to reach people for you. Use us in your name. Amen.